Well, it, it is really good to see everybody here this morning. Um, I want you to know how much I, I enjoy this class, how much I enjoy being with you guys and sharing this together. And I don't know about you, but I really love the book of Isaiah, right? So let's go ahead and open a word of prayer and we'll continue to dig our way through this book. Father, we do come before you. We stand in awe of you, Lord. You are the sovereign one of the universe. Father, you are working uh, to judge those who rebel against you. You are working to save your chosen ones. And Lord, as we read about your own declaration of your power and your glory and your might, Lord, I pray that you would use the words we hear today, ministered by the Holy Spirit, to judge our thoughts and intentions, to conform us to the image of Jesus. And Lord, that you would be pleased with all you hear and see this morning. We pray it in his name. Amen. Well, we're going to do two chapters today, and you may think that's impossible, and you may be right, but we're going to try it anyway. So let me open up by reading you a quote. It says, The prophet Hosea, a contemporary of Isaiah, gives us an insight into idolatry. With their silver and the gold, they made idols for their own destruction. That's interesting in at least two ways. First, they made idols with silver and gold. Silver and gold are good things, beautiful things, valuable things. An idol is not, in essence, a smelly monstrosity. It's a good thing God created for us. So how does a good thing go bad? We corrupt it by the way we perceive it and feel about it. Not in our formal conscious commitments, but in our functional emotional commitments, we exchange the creator for something created. We trade down because the gift seems more real and more rewarding than the giver. That is idolatry. It's a matter of the heart. The prophet Ezekiel said their heart went after their idols. Whatever good thing their heart goes after, if you prefer it to God himself, it's an idol. And I just thought that's a really good quote to help introduce what we're going to talk about today. Because we're going to talk about a nation that God called as his servant to be a judge to Babylon. And we're going to see that if they'd been faithful, if they would have acknowledged the God who enabled all of this, God would have blessed them. But instead, they're going to turn around and we're going to see something we saw earlier. Earlier, when we looked at Assyria, we said one of the things that was key to their downfall was their own pride. And we're going to see that again with Babylon. So let's go ahead uh, and get going. It says, um, basically, chapter 46 is about the idols of Babylon, and chapter 47 is going to be about the destruction of idolatry and the destruction of Babylon. And we need to understand idolatry and destruction go together. Babylon had turned to God she would have lived. But instead, she clung to her idols and in the end, was weighed down into the dust. 
So I want you to, to think for a minute about Babylon because we're going to see Babylon in the book of Isaiah. We see it in the book of Jeremiah, but we also see it in the New Testament. So what's it doing there? We need to understand as we think about Babylon, it's not just a, a bygone historical era or city, um, but Babylon is a type, it is a representative, it is a cipher for the whole world culture outside of Jesus Christ. In the book of Revelation, Babylon represents the culture, it represents business, it represents the world infrastructure. It sort of represents 1 John 2, 15 and 16. The Bible is showing us the essence of our world today just as it is showing uh, Isaiah is condemning Babylon back then. And then we need to a little bit understand idols. Okay, we need to understand what we're talking about. He talks, he calls them idols. They're like these old, dead, obsolete ideas and theories and customs and self-images that make us feel like silver and gold we can't live without but the fact is that they destroy us because they have no place under the lordship of the living Christ. And if we cling to our idols, we will we'll be afraid of the light. We will ultimately run from the light. Ezekiel puts it this way in Ezekiel 20, verse 16. Because they rejected my judgments, and as for my statutes, they did not walk in them. They even profaned my Sabbaths. Why would they do that? Why would you do that? Well, in ver at the end of the verse, for their heart continually walked after their idols. You know, we're going to read a lot today, and we're going to continue to read about idols of silver and gold manufactured by men who sit there and, and make an idol, and then they set it in their kitchen or on the island in their kitchen or wherever they had back then. But we need to understand an idol doesn't just have to be a thing made from silver, gold, or wood, right? The issue of an idol is the heart of a man. That is the issue. And we need to, we're going to see today that we're going to get more insight into God's character. We're going to see that God demands your affection. God demands it. He demands our love. He demands our fidelity. In Exodus 20, verse 5, he says, You shall not worship them. He's talking about the idols, the gods of the lands. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, Yahweh, am your God. I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Those who hate me. In Deuteronomy 4, it says, For Yahweh your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Right? You cannot have an idol and God in your heart. You cannot have an idol and Jesus Christ is your Lord. Pick one. And you may think, well, that's all Old Testament stuff. Well, Romans 1 puts it this way in verse 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the likeness of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. 
Therefore God gave them over in their lust to their, uh, of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. Right? Paul is talking about the contemporary culture. He is talking about what is true of all unbelievers and what ought to not be true to any degree of any believer. Right? This is not what we do. So let's get into the text and work our way through this. Chapter 46 isn't a particularly long chapter, but uh, you can really think of it as remember your God. He's talking initially to Judah. And... uh, Uh, he's going to talk about the gods of Babylon and the fact that their gods will not save them. No idol will ever deliver on what you think it will. He says, so who who are Bel? Bel is another word for for Baal, which is a satanic name in Nebo. Bel was the patron god of Babylon, the king of gods, and the determiner of, of the destiny of nations. He was also known as Marduk. Nebo is his eldest son, the secretary of the council of gods and a custodian of the tablets of destiny. Um, And we've already seen these. We've meant them through the names of Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar are based on the names of these gods. They represented the ideals of Babylon. It is the authority of these gods that validated Babylon to lead the culture of the world. They acted out annually. They had this thing called the New Year Festival, and the images of Baal and Nebo were carried in grand procession through the cities as tokens of the good fortune for the coming year. Nebo was considered to be a god of learning whose seat was in a town called Bisopia, probably mispronounced that, a city 10 miles south of Babylon. He was in charge, as I already said, the tablets of destiny, which would describe what was going to happen in the coming year. However, in those messages from that God, none of what he said would happen. So when we see God declare, look, I know the end from the beginning, he is juxtaposing himself with the gods of Babylon who say, oh, we know the future, but they don't. But the God of the Jews does, our God does. So let's pick it up in 46, verse 1 and 2. Bel has bowed down, Nebo stoops over. Their images are on the beasts and the cattle. The things that you carry are burdensome, a load for weary beasts. They stoop over. They have bowed down together. They could not rescue the load, but they themselves have gone into captivity. Interesting phraseology. It's interesting the way God discusses these idols. He says that they, they, they're on the images of beasts. They're burdens for the people to carry. The word Isaiah uses for idol echoes the Old Testament word for pain, hurt, and strain. Idols promise everything, but they take everything from us and leave us fatally wounded. 
They never deliver on what they say they will. And they will never deliver on their promises. And again, we're probably not, I'm not too worried about many of you having a little silver statue above your fireplace on the mantle that you're bowing down to, but that doesn't mean you don't have other gods. I would argue America is the most idolatrous culture almost in the history of the world. And it's worse than having a silver idol. We make ourselves gods. We make the things we desire gods. We make our technology gods. And we need to understand they will never deliver. They had gone into captivity. They didn't protect Babylon. They went into captivity. In fact, when Cyrus came, even the gods were taken into exile. Their idols couldn't save them from being laid down on the backs of beasts and hauled away, let alone the people who worshipped them. In Isaiah 57, it says this, when you, cry out, when you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. But the wind will lift them all up, and the breath will take them away. He who takes refuge in me will inherit the land and will possess my holy mountain. God says, look, the idols will never deliver anything except pain and burdens and strifes, where I will deliver you into the holy land. In Jeremiah 50, verse 2, he says, Declare and make it heard among the nations. Make it heard and lift up a standard. Do not conceal it, but say, Babylon has been captured. Baal has been put to shame. Marduk has been shattered. Her images have been put to shame. Her idols have been shattered. So much for the faithfulness of a piece of silver, huh? Right? They put their faith in it, they put their trust in it, and what happened to Babylon? Got destroyed. But then goes God goes on and he does this repeatedly. We've seen this pattern before. When you look at this text, we shouldn't be surprised at what we're seeing. God says, they will not deliver you, and now God is going to declare his own power and glory. Look at verse 3. Hear me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, you who have been burdening me from your birth, and have been carried from the womb, even to your old age, I will be the same. And even to the graying years, I will bury you. I have done it. I will carry you and I will bury you, and I will rescue you. To whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me, that we would be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and waste silver on the scale, they hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. They fall down, indeed they worship it. They carry it upon their shoulder and bear it. They set it in its place, and it stands there. It doesn't move from its place. The one may cry out to it, it cannot answer, cannot save him from his distress. Do you see the juxtaposition here? God makes it really clear. They are a burden you have to carry, and he tells Judah, you are a burden I will carry. Right? Your burden I will carry. First of all, he calls in verse 3 and 4 to Jacob. He says, I will carry you. Right? It's not going to be Jacob that is ultimately going to deliver itself. 
Who is going to ultimately deliver Jacob? Yeah, the same person who delivered you, Jesus Christ himself, through the new covenant. All the remnants of the house of Israel. God of Israel is not helpless idol. He is, he is the one who is um, going to deliver him. I want you to notice the Lord uses the first person pronoun five times to emphasize his involvement. Yahweh himself will do this. Exodus 9 verse 4, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I lifted you up on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God is reminding them, I delivered you from Egypt. You didn't do that. You were slaves. I delivered you. And once again, I know you guys are going, yeah, that's, yeah, that's Old Testament stuff, right? Is there any New Testament stuff about that? I'm glad you asked. Revelation chapter 12, verse 14. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman. Now let me give you some text. Let me back up. So when we look at Revelation chapter 12, there's a sort of a break between the judgments that are going on, the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. And there's kind of an interlude where God is going to give us some historical background. And the woman here is Israel. It talks about her son or child who came forth, who Satan tried to gobble up but wasn't able to. And it makes it very clear that the woman is Israel. In fact, in this, in this chapter, we sort of get the whole history of Israel. And at the end of this, the woman is about to be destroyed by the Antichrist. And that's where we pick it up and it says, But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman, so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place, where she was nourished for times, times, and half a time, from the presence of the serpent. Who's the serpent? Satan. And time, we're going to see if you study the book of Revelation or the book of Daniel, you will know that the tribulation is seven years, and half of the tribulation, one of the phrases for it you'll see in the Bible is 1260 days, another one is times, time, and half a time. He's referring to years, so times to Time, three, and half a time is three and a half years, which is, oh, by the way, 1260 days, which is, oh, by the way, half of the tribulation. So what we see here is God is ultimately going to rescue Israel. He's going to take her away, fly her to the wilderness, and protect her for the last three and a half years of the tribulation. God will deliver them. And then God once again reminds us of who he is. Please don't, and, and this is as true to me as it is to you, don't just sit there and go, oh, okay, I think I've heard this before. God is speaking to you. God, through the Holy Spirit, is declaring to Isaiah and to Judah and to Babylon and to Believer's Fellowship, Right? The word is still true, and God is going to declare his active and saving power to protect his chosen ones. And, and, he, and he says, yet you still carry the burdens of these gods when I'm willing to carry you. Psalm 86, verse 8, there is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor is there any 
like you. Psalm 113, verse 5, Who is like Yahweh our God, the one who sits on high? And, and I just want you to note, he says, Whom will you like me? Whom will you make me equal? Well, what am I alike? What in creation can be compared to the Creator? What's the answer to that question? Nothing. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 20. No, but I say to you, things, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to gods, and I do not want you to become sharers in demons. What he's saying is, you need to understand, idols, whatever the idol is, is not just something we make up. They are at, what is the actual source of all this idolatry? It's satanic. It's demons. He says these idols that they make and bow down to, they're demons. That's what Paul says. Look at the text. In Romans 6, verse 17, he says, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching which you were given over, and have been freed from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Just like Israel, we enslave ourselves to sins and idols. And just as God promised to deliver them from their burden, God frees us from our slavery to sin. See, Israel carried around these burdens of sin. They carried around these idols on their shoulders. And God says, I will carry you. I offer you freedom, and by the way, he says the same thing to you. You're not a slave to sin anymore. Let go of your idols. You're free. And then, you know, this is one of those passages that as you study it, you just, you kind of want to lay your Bible on your desk and get on the floor and just put your face on the floor and humble yourself before God, because God is once again going to repeat His magnificence. Right? See, we should be always amazed by our God. Right? Always. You know, one of the problems with Americans is, is we can become very complacent. We just get used to things, yeah, yeah, that's really good, right? We, we expect things, we're so comfortable. You know, I understand my wife tells me it's going to get colder later today, right? And, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily like 100 degrees, but I can deal with it. But I don't like cold, right? Anything colder than 60 degrees, that's not fit for man or beast, right? You don't go out in that weather. You, don't, you, you should not be outside in that kind of weather. It's dangerous, right? But see... I'm going to go home and I'm going to turn my thermostat on my heater up to a nice, comfortable temperature, and I'm not going to worry about the weather outside. We are so comfortable. We have so many things. And one of the disadvantages of that, unlike suffering, unlike people who don't know if they're going to be fed tomorrow, is we just kind of take God for granted. Right? We go in there and we worship and we sing the songs, right? And, and, and we watch Chance preach, and we listen, and we take notes because we know we're going to have to answer questions in fellowship group. <laughs> but let me ask you this. 
Is your attitude, Lord, I want to behold you. Lord, I come to worship you. When you sing those songs, are you thinking the words and, and from the bottom of your heart, giving praise and glory and honor to the king? Well, you should. And let me just remind you what God says. I'm going to read God speaking to you, right? Now, how many of you have ever heard God speak audibly? Well, you're about to, because I'm going to read his word audibly to you. All right? So if anybody ever says, have you heard God speak to you audibly? You can say, yes, Art read me the text. Remember this and be assured. Because it, to return to your heart, you transgressors, remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times the things that have not been done, saying, my counsel will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure calling a bird of prey from the east and a man of my counsel from a country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have formed it. Surely I will do it. Hear me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I will bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay and I will grant salvation to Zion, my glory for Israel. See, that's one of those passages you just bow down, right? God is speaking and he's declaring his magnificence to Israel. Notice how it starts out. Remember this. God reminds Israel of all the things he has done for them in the past. And in remembering it, they are to remember who God is. Remembering the former things of old. They are to recall all the past history of fulfilled prophecies. The miraculous, miraculous deliverances that they have had. And the providential blessings they've experienced. God tells them, bring all of these things to mind. And by the way, has God done incredible things in your life? Yeah. Right? Now, I'm not one of those charismatic guys who believes in miracles. I don't believe people can go around healing. The healing doesn't come from people. I don't believe in all that. But I do believe in miracles. And I have only witnessed one in my life, but it was a miracle. There was a time, a long time ago, 50-ish years, where God took a kid whose heart was stone, and after hearing the gospel from his sister... God turned a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. That is a miracle. I was a dead man. If I would have been in my natural self, I would have died a dead man with a heart of stone who's blind and cannot hear. And God gave me a heart of flesh. And God opened my eyes so I could see and my ears so I could hear. That is a miracle. And God, by the way, has done that miracle for all of you if you're a believer. For all who call upon the name of the Lord, He will do that. Right? So when we look back, and, and I look back in my life at all the times, there were times when I should have died and God saved me. And, and there were miraculous times where I cannot explain how I survived. But God delivered me. I see all these things God has done in the lives of my children. How I would have made a, a wreck of my life, but God protected me. 
And I look back on all these things and I remember what God has done and you should do the same. The, the circumstances may be different in your life. The particulars are different. But the pattern of God, your deliverer and your protector is not different. It's the same. Psalm 105 verse 5 says, Remember His wondrous deeds which we has done, His miracles and the judgment uttered by His mouth. O seed of Abraham, his servant. O sons of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is Yahweh our God. His judgments are in all the earth. And remember, Israel is his chosen one, but so are you. You are his chosen one. And God is going to declare his sovereignty again. Once again, he asked... Israel to remember his sovereign control of all history. Why, why would he do this again? He tells us to remember because our propensity is to forget. When God instituted the Passover, what did he tell Israel? He said, do this over and over so that you will not forget. Right? Now, we don't celebrate the Passover. Right? We don't celebrate the Feast of Booths. We don't celebrate any of those things, nor should we. They are part of the Old Covenant. But on the night Jesus was betrayed, right? he took the elements, and he gave them the wine, and he gave them the bread, and he explained the significance of those, and he said, do this in remembrance of me. Why would he do that? Why does God do that? Because we forget. Right? The gospel is proclaimed when we do the Lord's table, is it not? We are reminded of the gospel. We are reminded of the sacrifice of our Lord and King. And we should never forget. Which is why we do the Lord's table at least every month. Right? So that you will not forget. He does his good pleasure. Notice, he talks about the fact that he, he says, I am God, there's no other. I will accomplish all my purposes. And he says, look, you know, when the bird flies from the east, the bird of prey, he's talking about an eagle there, I'm sure, right? That was, uh, Dave got the joke, but anyway. He calls the bird of prey and it comes. Do you understand that when the grackles show up on 3009 and I-35, right, God called every one of them and they came. Right? My wife and I like to sit out in the morning and she's got these bird feeders and a hummingbird thing. Right? And we sit out there and, and the birds come. God calls those birds. None of them act on their own. His good pleasure will be accomplished. He holds all history in his hands. Right? I mean, I don't know if you watch, but the whole world is wringing its hands over what's going on in the Middle East. Is it going to be a war? Are we going to have World War III? I don't know the answer. I honestly don't know what's going to happen. But I know this. In Matthew 8, verse 17, Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Uh, do you not yet perceive or understand? Have you hardened your, uh, 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 do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do not see. Having ears, do not hear. Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? 
how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? And then they said to him, 12. And when I broke this, uh, the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of pieces did you pick up? And they said, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? God will accomplish his purposes. Remember his miracles. I mean, those were incredible miracles. Would you agree? He created food from nothing. God will accomplish his good pleasure, and God's good pleasure is always good. It is always perfect. John 17, verse 24. You want to know what God's pleasure is? Would you like to know? Well, Jesus will tell you at least part of God's pleasure. He says in verse 24, Father, I desire... So this is what pleases Jesus. This is what Jesus is asking the Father. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you love me before the foundation of the world. God is going to do what? Will he do all his good pleasure? Will he? Does he not declare that here in the text? He says, my counsel will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Jesus says, my desire and pleasure is that the ones you have given me will be with me where I am, and they will behold my glory unveiled. That's your destiny. One day, it is the desire of God who will accomplish all his good purposes that you will stand in the very presence of Jesus and see him in his unveiled glory. Right? Now, I try to imagine that. I do. I mean, you guys think I'm weird, and I am. But I, a lot of times, I maybe it's because I realize I'm getting closer to that day. I try to imagine what it'll be like when I see him. And I can't. I, I, I can't even comprehend it. I... I you know, I read. I, I like to read Revelation because it gives me ideas. But we will see him with all his glory, face to face. And that's the Father's good pleasure for you, believer. And he will accomplish it. God will grant salvation to all who call upon me. He accuses Israel of having a stubborn heart of rejecting his offer of salvation. And that is true, by the way. And it's true of Israel now. By the way, it's also true of many in churches. Right? Churches are filled with people who have heard the offer of salvation and not accepted it. The church, you know, there was a period here a while back where the head of the deacon board went to the pastor and said, you know, after a sermon, he said, you know, I just realized I, I'm not even a believer. And, and weeks later, got baptized, got saved, right? Being in a church doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in a garage makes you a car, right? Isaiah 55, listen to this offer. He's making this offer to Israel. He makes it to every unbeliever in America or everywhere. Ho! Every one of you who thirsts, come to the waters. 
And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money on what is not bread and your wages on what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight your soul in richness. That's God calling to the lost. He is calling to Israel. Why spend your money on what doesn't satisfy when I will give you endless pleasures free? Why would you do that? Jesus says this through the Holy Spirit. Paul writes it in Romans 10. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever. And that whoever, what does that word mean? It means whoever. Let's look at chapter 47. We'll kind of go fast through this. It's a lament over fallen Babylon. The future has already been predicted. Persia is going to rise up under uh, Cyrus and overthrow Babylon. Babylon is going to die. Every death calls for a funeral. Chapter 47 is a funeral dirge for Babylon. That's what it is. Babylon is going to be totally ruined. Look at verse 1. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no longer be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind flour. Uncover your veil. Strip off your skirt. Uncover the leg. Cross the rivers. Your nakedness will be uncovered. Your approach will be seen. I will take vengeance and will not spare a man. O Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel. Sit silently and go into darkness, O daughters of the Chaldeans, for you will no longer be called Queen of Kingdoms. Now when we read that in 21st century America, right, in 2023, we kind of look at that and the wording and the, and the stuff is a little odd to us. Because frankly, if you go to a beach, right, we see women who are oftentimes not appropriately dressed, right? They, they want to. But in their days, the, the uncovering of yourself was a sign of utter shame. Right? We, we don't catch the full meaning of this. We, we tend to miss it. The verbs go down and sit. Um, in the original picture, the queen's movement from a glorious throne and luxurious royal court to sitting in the filthy dust of the earth where a privileged queen would never sit. Calling the Babylon a virgin daughter utilizes the imagery of a young woman of fastidious and luxurious taste who has never had to face the hard side of life. And, and he calls her and shows the complete violation of her intimacy. She is utterly violated. She is utterly disgraced. I mean, we don't... One of the problems in our culture is the word shame doesn't mean anything anymore, right? Do you, I mean, people do the most horrible things, and there's no shame. Criminals commit horrific crimes, and there's no shame. 
but you know, the Bible calls us at times to feel shame. And he calls Babylon to be ashamed for what she did. And God will shame her. Psalm 137, verse 8, O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one. How blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense to which you have recompensed us. He's talking about Cyrus and uh, Persia. Zechariah 2, verse 7, Woe, Zion, escape! You who are living with the daughter of Babylon. Zion is going to escape. They're going to be delivered. And Cyrus is going to do it. And in verses 4 and 5, we're told Babylon will realize that Yahweh is king. See, in in their destruction, but it'll be too late. It it talks about the Lady of Kingdoms. The title continues the analogy of verse 1 and speaks of the exalted position from which Babylon has fallen. She was a mistress of the world, but now she's a slave woman, degraded, naked, sitting in the dust. Zechariah 2, verse 13, Be silent, all flesh, for Yahweh, before Yahweh, for he has aroused his holy habitation. He is angry, and he is now pouring that out on Babylon. Right? Well, he's now going to make an accusation against Babylon. We see it in verses 6 through 7. He says, I was feareth with my people. I profaned my inheritance. I gave them into your hand, and you did not show compassion to them. On the aged, you made your yoke very heavy, yet you said, I will be queen forever. These things you did not put in your heart, nor remember the outcome of them. God called Babylon to judge Judah, correct? Is that true? Because he will accomplish all his purposes, correct? That was part of judgment. But, and we saw the same thing with Assyria. We've seen it before. Instead of acknowledging God's role in this and God sovereignly doing what God does and giving God the honor and the glory, they take it for themselves. See it there? He says... I gave them into you, Ham, but you didn't show them compassion. He made their old carry a heavy yoke, and then they said, I will be queen forever. And God says, these things you did not put on your heart, nor remember the outcome of them. You didn't remember what I did. You didn't remember who was doing this and accomplishing this. And by the way, did their king understand? Who was their king? When Judah got captured, Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar had a wise advisor. And what was his name? Daniel and his two buds, Shadrach and Meshach. And if you remember, there was a period where God made it clear to Nebuchadnezzar who was king. Right? Jeremiah 50 in verse 17 says this. Israel is a shattered, scattered flock, and lions have banished them away. The first one who devoured them was the king of Assyria, and this last one who has broken his bones is Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Therefore, thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, 
I am going to punish the king of Babylon and his land just as I have punished the king of Assyria. God says, you know, I know who these kings are. I am accomplishing my purpose. And Nebuchadnezzar knew the truth because of his servant, Daniel. And Nebuchadnezzar rebelled. His son rebelled. We're going to see that here in a minute. God declares ultimate judgment. We need to understand this. If you're like me, I get discouraged. I mean, I can't watch the news anymore. It just, right? People in America going, cast the Jews, kill the Jews. In a protest. And, and, and everybody thinks that good. No one condemned it. Nobody condemned it. Wow. That those words could be uttered and not condemned befuddles me. But I understand that those who oppose God, right? Those who oppose God, God will deal with. Listen to this. Listen to verse 8 for the rest of the chapter. So now hear this, you sensual one who sits securely, who says in his heart, I am and there is no one besides me. I will not sit as a widow, nor no loss of children. But these two things will come on you suddenly in one day, loss of children and widowhood. And they will come on you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries, in spite of the great might of your spells. You felt secure in your evil and said, No one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge have turned you astray. So you have said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. By the way, have we heard that phrase before? Who said that? Yahweh did. Well, here, Babylon says it. So we'll see who's telling the truth. But evil will come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away, and disaster will fall on you, for which you cannot atone, and destruction about which you do not know will come on you suddenly. Stand fast now in your spells and in your many sorceries with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you will be able to profit. Perhaps you, will um, you may cause trembling. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let now the astrologers, those who behold visions by the stars, and who predict by the new moon, stand up and save you from what is to come. Behold, they have become like stubble. Fire burns them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. There will be no coal to warm, nor a fire to sit before. Thus you have become, uh, thus they have become for you, and those among whom you have labored, who have traded with you from your youth, each has wandered in his own way, there is none to save you. Wow. Babylon is going to face ultimate judgment. Cyrus is going to come in and Babylon will be no more and Babylon will never exist except as a type, as a, as a picture of culture. Their ruin, first of all, note it will be a surprise. Like the Syrians before, pride is the root of God's displeasure. 
even though they were an instrument of God, they assigned to themselves, which God had done in their arrogance, God will judge them as he did Assyria. Such blasphemy to say, uh, the the exact words they say, um, I am and there is none besides me. Nebuchadnezzar should have known better, right? His son should have known better. Belshazzar. But didn't. Isaiah 12, verse 2. For Yahweh of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and high and against everyone who is lifted up that they may be made low. What does that word everyone mean? It means everyone. By the way, it means everyone. That includes us. Isaiah 13, verse 11, Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity, and I will put an end to the pride of the arrogant and bring, the, and bring low the lofty of the ruthless. Babylon thinks itself immune from God's judgment. God confronts arrogant Babylon by calling her, You sensual one who dwells securely. They thought, I am, and there is no one besides me. I will sit... And a wid- I will sit as a widow, no loss of children. I will not be a widow. No nation, no matter how wealthy, powerful might be, should ever think that they are invincible. Because God showed Babylon, and God will show any other nation, that if they think they're invincible against his power and his good pleasure, they are wrong. Babylon thought they could rely on their magical resources. They're sorcerers, they're astrologers. And God said no. Babylon thinks that God can't see them. Yeah, that didn't work either. Deuteronomy 8.11 says, Or one who is an enchanter or a medium or a spiritualist or who inquire of the dead, you should kill those people. You should cut them off from the land. Yet that's who Babylon relied on. They said, God can't see me. Oops. Were they right about that? Nope. God knows everything. God is wise. And I want you to notice their their wise counselors, the elite of Babylon, will fail. Right? Just like in our culture today, you understand we are ruled by a bunch of elitists who think they're so much better than us and so much smarter than us. They will do what they want. They think they're immune from God. Where is Babylon concert? Counselors and wise men now, God taunts them. Show them to me. Let me bring you back to Daniel 5. Right? The moment we're within 24 hours of the destruction of Babylon in Daniel 5. And they're having a party. Nebuchadnezzar's kid, Belshazzar, is having a party and he's brought all the, the utensils from the temple to blaspheme God. And they're sitting there and they're praising the gods of stone and silver. And then all of a sudden something happens. You remember what it was? Yeah, all of a sudden, and I try and imagine that. You're sitting there and like that wall, all of a sudden a hand shows up and just starts writing on the wall. Now I'm thinking that's an attention-getting step. Right? If you're the king and you're the party and all of a sudden this hand shows up and starts writing on the wall, right? I mean, I don't know exactly what it looked like, how big the hand was, but it got their attention. 
Let me pick it up in verse 7. And the king called out loudly to bring the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. And the king answers and said to the wise man of Babylon, Any man who can read this writing and declare its interpretation to me will be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and rule with power as a third ruler in the kingdom. <coughs> That's a pretty good deal. You want to get a promotion? Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make its interpretation known to the king. And then some guy comes in and does that, right? Remember who that was? Daniel. Mrs. Nebuchadnezzar goes to her son and goes, hey, hey, remember the guy with your dad, that Jewish guy, Daniel, Belshazzar? You ought to give him a call. Belshazzar calls him, and he basically tells, the writing says, you're done. It's over. Yeah. And he said, and then the king goes and he goes, now, I don't need these because, oh, by the way, you're about to non exist. That very night, Cyrus destroys and takes over Babylon. That very night. Party's over. Malachi 4, verse 1 For behold, days are coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every worker of wickedness will be chaffed. And the day that is coming will set them aflame, says Yahweh of hosts, and I will leave them neither root nor branch. That is a prophetic passage. A day is coming. This is a day that has not come yet. This is a day that is future. Let me give you a little look at what Malachi is talking about from John's vision in Revelation. Chapter 18, verse 23, And the light of the lamp will not shine in you any longer, and the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will not be heard in you any longer, for your merchants were the great men of the earth, because of all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. That is a reference to the eschatological Babylon. Again, it's not Babylon reborn. It's a reference to Babylon as a type for the culture in the world at that time. And God says, look, your merchants, your lamp's not going to shine, your merchants aren't going to do anything. Babylon, the kingdom back in 600 B.C., was utterly ruined. And in the future, the future Babylon will be destroyed. And they became, notice it says, they will become like those whom they have labored and trafficked. They will not be saved. Babylon oppressed the old, it oppressed the helpless, and God says, and you will be just like that. That's what I'm going to do to you. In the way in which you dealt with Judah, I am going to deal with you, only it'll be worse. It'll be worse. So in these two chapters, we see God addresses the issue of Babylon and once again reminds your gods, Nebo and Marduk and all those gods, they said they could protect you. They said they could tell you the future, and they didn't. I am the God who does all these things, and my pleasures will be accomplished, and I will redeem Israel. I will save my chosen ones. And his chosen ones are Israel, and his chosen ones are who else? Believers Fellowship. I looked really hard in the text. I couldn't find the words Believers Fellowship, but it's in there. Okay. So let me just briefly talk about some of the implications. 
Let me read you a quote from Ortland. I, I, he's a great commentator, and every once in a while, he just comes up with these brilliant sayings I wish I could think up. He said, God has heaven, hidden everything delightful in Jesus Christ, and everything outside him destroys us. That is an awesome quote. Everything delightful is in Jesus, and everything else destroys you. You know, Jesus, in the beginning, God is calling to Judah over their idols, and they choose their idols. <clears throat> but, you know, I, 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 if Jesus were to stand here and said, you, get, you guys get one question, we might want to ask Jesus, what's the most important thing we can do? Well, he got that very question. What's the greatest thing I can do? And in Matthew 22, we hear his answer. Lord, what's most important? Verse 37, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Notice he says next in verse 40, on these two commandments hangs the whole law and the prophets. The most important thing in your life, directly told you by Christ himself, period. Nothing else is more important. Should you share the gospel? Yes. Should you come to church? Yes. Should you serve and help out on, on, October, uh, on our Reformation Day thing that we harvest fest? Yes, you should. You know, is it good to do parking? Like, yes, it is. That's not the most important. You will do those because you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That is the most important thing about you. By the way, I think the best definition of a Christian is somebody who loves Jesus more than anything. Because if you don't, you're not a Christian. Right? And Jesus said, look, if, if you do that, then all those other things, they'll all be covered. Because you love Jesus. In John 14, 21, it says, He who has my commands and keeps them, he it is who loves me. That's the one who loves me. Right? And, and, and don't get it wrong. You don't keep his commandments because he said you keep his commandments because you love him. The ones who love him are the ones who will naturally do that. Matthew 10. Let me just remind you the words of your king. Verse 37, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take up his cross and follow me, follow after me, is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Jesus is pretty clear, right? By the way, if you love him, then you will do all these things. You won't love father, mother, sister, brother, more than him. You'll take up your cross because you love him and you will find your life, right? The second thing is God calls us to abandon our idols and trust in him alone. I want you to notice the juxtaposition. I want you to notice the comparison. He's constantly comparing himself to idols, right? The idol says you can do this, but I will accomplish my things. Tell me if the idol's going to do that. I do this. It sits there on a shelf, but I do this. Will it protect you? Will it deliver you? What's the answer to that question? No. Right? Only God will do this. And the obvious implication is we need to trust in Him and abandon those idols. 
Now, again, I don't think any of you, if I were to come visit your house, I'd, I'd see on your mantle a little God of whatever, right? But I don't know what's in your hearts. And see, there have been times I've had to ask God to, to cut out the things in my heart that were displeasing to Him, even though they weren't necessarily bad things. They just competed for my affection for Him. Jesus says this in Matthew 6, But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth or rust destroys, or where thieves do not break in or steal. Verse 21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then go down to verse 24. No one can serve two masters. He will either hate one and love the other, or he be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. I would, I would paraphrase that by you cannot serve God and anything else. Pick one. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, look, you, you don't invest in stuff. He goes, for where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. You should only have one treasure, and who's that? Jesus, that's your treasure. And, and 1 John 2, 15, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Okay, pick one. John says, you, 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 if, you love the, if you love the things of the world, and I'm not saying this, John, the Spirit is saying it, the love of the Father is not in you. And if you don't have the love of the Father, you are not a believer and you are damned to hell because your ultimate love is an idol. All right, we need to understand that. And then just thirdly, God hates pride. If you remember earlier, we looked at the chapter where Nebuchadnezzar was warned by Daniel in a dream about a tree. And this tree had all the birds in it and everything, and, and then all of a sudden it gets chopped down and it's gone, and it's just a stump with a gold a brass ring around it. And he's really distressed, and he calls Daniel. And Daniel goes, what a bummer, Neb. You're the tree. And God is warning you about your pride, Neb, and if you don't do this, you're going you're gonna to walk around like an animal for seven periods of time. You're going you're gonna to eat grass like a, like a cow. And then later in the chapter, we see Nebuchadnezzar looking over Babylon, and he goes, look at this city I have created. It is I, and there is none beside me. He doesn't say that, but that's his heart. In that very moment, God brings judgment, and exactly what Daniel said happened. Right? God personally intervened in his life, and God personally judged him over his pride. You need to understand, and we've already read, God judges pride in nations, and God judges pride in people. James 4, 6, But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. That phrase, opposed to, refers to lining up in military, like a military force lined up against you. You look over there and there's an army all lined up opposing you. That's the, that's the idea here. 
God is going to line up against you like an army if you're proud. Isaiah 66, verse 2, I'll close with this. For my hand made all these things. Thus, all these things come into being, declares Yahweh. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, who trembles at my word. Right? We've heard God speak this morning through His Word. I am Yahweh and there is no one beside me. And that's not my words, that's His words. That is Yahweh Himself speaking to you. And He says we should tremble at His Word. You know, and I'll tell you, when I do this and I study this, that's what I feel like. It's like, like I said, I want to get out of my chair and kind of get on my face. I don't know what to do with it. The awesomeness of, of Yahweh, and it's being declared, I am seeing, I am beholding God in the Word. And that ought to make you humble and contrite of spirit. Right? That's what God tells you. We're going to see that in just a couple chapters. Well, 20 chapters, something like that. That's a couple. So next week, just preview of coming attractions. Um, we're going to look at chapter 48 where he says, I declared the former things long ago, and they went forth from my mouth, and I caused them. I acted, and they came to pass. And he's going to say, I will not give my honor and my glory to another. And he's going to talk about how he redeems Jacob. I'll tell you, chapter 48 is really cool. Right? Not going to do two chapters here. And then in chapter 49, we're going to see how he's, how God is not only going to deal with Israel, but God is going to deal with the nations. We've seen how he's judged them, right? We read that earlier, Tyre, Sidon, all those places. Now we're going to see how he's going to be a light to them. It's going to get really cool. And by the way, you know, I don't know if you've noticed, but we're getting closer to Isaiah 53, right? And if you're going, do you really like that chapter, Art? The answer is yes, I really like that chapter. We will not do Isaiah 53 in one week. I'm just telling you that ahead of time. Uh, yeah, no. Where's Kyle at? Yeah, no. Okay. I mean, it is, it is one of the greatest proclamations of the gospel in the entire Bible. In the entire Bible you're going to see the gospel clearly presented. You're going to see doctrines that you don't see as clear in the news. You're going to see imputation. You're going to see the doctrine of imputation very clearly laid out. Right? You're going to see the atonement very clearly laid out, the atoning grace of Christ, the penal substitutionary atonement clearly laid out in Isaiah. Right? God is speaking. And he spoke this when? When, when is Isaiah written about? 700-ish? Right? And God is declaring the end from the beginning. Right? We're going to read later, we're going to read about the end of all things, which he declared 2,700 plus years ago. 27, 23, something like that. A bunch. Okay? Let's close. Father, may we all walk out of here amazed at your glory. 
Lord, may we walk out of here amazed at you, and I pray that our worship as your chosen ones, your church, your called out ones, that our worship would be heartfelt and deep and sincere and humble, that we would worship you with a broken spirit and a contrite heart. May you be pleased in all you hear and see. We pray this in his name. Amen.